This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of August 2nd through 6th. Uh, We have David Faber as guest host. Um, But before we get to that, we had some Jeopardy news that's been uh, breaking on the on the uh, day or two before uh, Kyle and I are recording. Um, uh, It appears that executive producer Mike Richards is in advanced negotiations uh, to take over as Jeopardy host. Mm-hmm. We have some trepidation about that. We've got some opinions. Yeah, and we probably, I mean, you can go on Twitter and you can find lots of opinions. I have seen very few opinions on Twitter from anyone who's like, yay, Mike Richards, love that's, him. That's what I was going to, I was going to kind of caveat that with saying they, t- they tend to all agree, but there are a lot of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, so two things I've seen leaked. One is getting a lot of traction, and it's like the you know that Mike Richards is in negotiations to be guest host. Uh, I can't remember where I saw this other one, but they, I also saw a like sources from Inside Jeopardy saying that the time when he stepped in to fill in for a slated guest host who couldn't come after all that he sort of presented that as something he just had to do because of the taping schedule. um, And that in fact, the rest of the Jeopardy crew were, were working on rescheduling and we're, you know, we're prepared to kind of scratch that tape date and, you know, kind of make it up at a later time. And that Mike Richards sort of insisted, if I remember correctly on, on, on stepping in, which just feels a little different now. Yeah. (laughs) I, I, Kyle and I were saying before we started taping that it honestly didn't occur to us at the time that he was, you know, eligible for consideration. Right. Because um, the way he presented it, right, was yeah. Ken is unavailable for this week of taping, so I'm stepping in, right? It's like... Because I'm the executive producer. Yeah. And like, right. you know, I think in a lot of professional settings, if you're in one of those decision-making roles, you can't really take the very high profile job that you're considering candidates for and be like me i'm the best pick so um yeah it's a mess uh some stuff has come out about lawsuits yeah uh, yeah i um i'm not crazy about any of that nope super um, nope yep super nope in the course of reading about this i did realize why Mike Richards looks familiar to me, uh, which is that he was the host of uh, the reality uh, show Beauty and the Geek, mm-hmm. which I knew one of the geek contestants on. And so I watched that when it was airing way back in like, gosh, I think 2006. But <laughs> it was a very different brand from Jeopardy. Uh <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so we'll see how that all develops sure. in the coming weeks. Yeah. I think we here at the podcast are on record as saying, Ugh, 
Um, yeah. Is that just, a fair, fair yes. summation? Yes. To, yeah. to put it, to put it succinctly, uh, <laughs> like maybe throw a yikes in there too. Yeah. You know, I mean, if it goes forward and they don't, you know, Sony doesn't pay attention to anybody and is like, we're, you know, we hire him and he's the host. I'm going to keep watching. Yeah. I mean, Alex was Alex Trebek, but I didn't really watch Jeopardy for Alex Trebek. Yep. I watched it for the trivia, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm still going to watch it for the trivia and for the contestants and all that. And I just, I don't know. Yeah. I do hope they take it in a different direction. It's, it's like this amount of public outcry is really not what you want. And I think it's pretty justified. Um, anyway, Monday, August 2, 2021. Uh, this is our first game with David Faber as guest host. And we have the contestants Anna Hendrick, a private investigator from Queens, New York. That's a pretty badass job. Yeah, <laughs> uh, she's basically Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kent Easter, a management consultant from San Diego, California, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose eight-day cash winnings total $291,200. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the state I rep in the Senate, from TV to film, naughty by nature, that is with a K, and we had some off-color category titles this week can talk about that more later hodgepodge science and hill and mountain idioms uh and we didn't really talk about david faber uh as the guest host because we got we talked about potential future permanent host but uh i I thought david faber was good i thought he did a good job he he was comfortable talking to people he did he was clear he did mix up his like no no that's that's not right that's incorrect or yes you got it well done like mm-hmm. I th- I thought he did a good job. Yep, uh, dynamic. He seemed to kind of grasp the game mechanics pretty well and kept things moving. Um, yeah, no, he was just really solid. Uh, the naughty by nature category was very nice uh, to me as an Eagle Scout. Not sort of big thing mm-hmm. in the Scouts. I did think they were, it was a bit easy, but it's also a Jeopardy round category. That's fine. Mm-hmm. We did have hodgepodge, not mm-hmm. potpourri. That was fine. The first daily double is in the hill and mountain idioms category at the $600 level. Matt finds it. It's pick number 18. He is at 6400 Kent is at 2000 Anna is at 800 uh, and he bets it all, which is pretty normal for him at this point. Like he has a very clear strategy, and he executes it every every game. He gets the clue to do this means to exaggerate a problem into something much larger. And he says, "What's make a mountain out of a molehill?" Which is correct. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so at the end of this Jeopardy round, Matt is up to fourteen thousand two hundred. Kent is at 3,000 and Anna is at 2,000. We get the double Jeopardy categories, American Rivers, instrumental to the song, plays, Y in the middle, thrown out, as it thrown as in like the seat you sit on, and at home. I thought that instrumental to the song category was rather difficult. Oh, 
good. I was hoping you were going to say that. If you said it was easy, I was going to just cry about my inability to no, learn anything like about it, popular music. I knew the yeah. 800 like electric guitarist on Rollover mm-hmm. Beethoven 1956. Now, at this point, that was 65 years ago. So that's not that's basically historical music at this point. So I knew mm-hmm. that that's Chuck Berry. But the others, like 1600 drummer on Come As You Are 1991. I know who Dave Grohl is, but I don't remember that song. This one, I I don't know. If you know pop music, it's probably very easy for you. But for me, I was like, oh, man, I don't know the people who are in who play instruments in modern bands. We take so much mm-hmm. of the spotlight off of them. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not what we care about anymore. Yeah, I also struggled with that whole category. I remembered that the $400 level, he plays piano on clocks, 2002, that it was going to be Chris something, but I couldn't remember his name. That's Chris Martin. Mm. Oh, uh, there's a, there's a, like a, like a quote that I've come across a few times or like a, like a meme that says, never make fun of somebody for Mm -hmm. mispronouncing something. It means they learned it by reading. I was having the same thought. Yeah. And uh, we had a few incidents of Matt Amodio uh, knowing the correct response, but no, not knowing how to pronounce it. Uh, mm-hmm. So case in point, in the why in the middle category at the $2,000 level, we had the clue. It's sometimes referred to as a longhorned grasshopper. And Matt rang in and said, what's uh, catadid? Mm-hmm. Which is makes perfect sense as, if you're trying to kind of apply like Greek pronunciation or like, you know, like, like think about like karyatid. Mm-hmm. Um to the word Katie did. The insect is normally pronounced Katie did. They, they accepted it, which I'm glad they did, you know, because he had all the letters there. And that's how Jeopardy works is... Uh, phonetically pro- appropriate. Yeah, phonetically, you are phonetically pronouncing all the letters in the word, even if it's not a correct, you know, the typical pronunciation, they will take it. Mm-hmm. I can't remember where else that came up this week, but it came up a couple of times. It did, it came up a few times. Other things that came up were a couple of deep dives that I've done. In yes. The, in the thrown out category, the $400 level, Lilia Kalani was the first and last reigning queen of these islands, of course, that's so the Hawaiian islands. Yeah. And it also mm-hmm. happened later on, which we'll talk about. Yes. Daily double number two is in the plays category at the $800 level. It's the 13th pick and Anna finds it. Uh, she has 2,400 at this point. Matt's already up at 20,200. <laughs> Ken's at 4,600. Anna makes it a true daily double, which is really the correct move at this point. Mm-hmm. And she gets the clue in the check play R-U-R, which gave the world this word. One of them says, mankind is no more. Mankind gave us too little life. Um, and she says, I have no idea. They are looking for robot. Yeah. I do not know that play. Yeah, me neither. I figured that uh, the title R-U-R, it had to be... I, I, I assumed that the correct answer would start with either R or U. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about like some kind of like, you know, like extraterrestrial or like... I remembered there was something about a play with like rhinoceros, <laughs> um, which is a surrealist thing that's come up in trivia 
for me a couple times recently. Yeah. You know, are the, like, do the, do the rhinoceroses, rhinocera? I don't know. Uh, take over the planet? Like, what's, what's, I don't know. But anyway, robot. Robot. Um, yeah, yeah. I had, I had not heard of that. Yeah, me either. And going, going back to that thrown out category, I realized there was another one before the Daily Double that, uh, at the $1,600 level, Oliver Cromwell's defeat of these two of right. the two kings of this name ended the English Civil War. That's Charles. I talked about that in my English Monarchs one. Uh, mm-hmm. And then the third daily double is at the $800 level. Matt finds it. He is up to 23400 and he wagers 4000 Kent is at 4600 and Anna's at zero. Uh, he gets the clue, this world leader renounced his throne on March 15th, 1917. 16 months later, he was dead. And he... <laughs> I mean, I'm all for, like, you know, giving less if if you uh, can get away with it in a Jeopardy response, right? Just give the last name. Just give what you need to get it right. And if they want more, they'll ask for more. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he said, what's Nicholas? And that, to me, is like, that's way too unspecific. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's just a dude's name. Yep. Like, it could be St. Nicholas. It could be Tsar Nicholas. <laughs> it could Nicholas. be Nicholas Easter from the Runaway Jury. It could be, <laughs> like, Nicholas to me was not enough. Um, but mm-hmm. he followed up with the second, which, you know, narrows it down to royalty and everything. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he knew it. I'm not saying, like, he guessed at it and got it and got lucky. But, like, if you knew it was Nicholas II, just say Nicholas II. Because they might, to me, if you just say who's Nicholas, in a lot of ways, that implies Nicholas the first. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. But it's Nicholas the second, which uh, he obviously listened to my deep dive, which actually did not get posted until after this show aired. So. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the only way. Mm-hmm. The only known. way yeah. he could have possibly known that very knowable thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Matt is at $34,200. It's just unbelievable. Um, Kent is at $7,400. Anna's at $400. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Historic Businessman. And the clue, born in the village of Waldorf, Germany in 1763, he arrived in the U.S. in 1784. Uh, This was a triple stumper. Anna tried who is Bayer. Uh, she wagered 400, so she drops to zero. Kent did not come any th- with come up with anything. He has who is question mark. Uh, he wagered 2,600. That drops him down to 4,800. And Matt responded who is Morris. I don't know who he might have been thinking of, actually. Like maybe uh, Philip Morris. Oh, maybe Philip guy. Morris. Yeah, yeah, that's believable. He wagered 15,000. That brings him down to 19,200. He didn't come close to risking his lock. No. He could have wagered another... Like, like nearly, like, 4,000 Another, almost. like, 4,000, yeah. yeah. So, with 19,200, which is what a lot of people land at after getting Final Jeopardy correct. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, that is our winner going into Tuesday. Yeah. John Jacob Astor, by the way, which is the correct response... Oh, right, yes. Yes. Yes, <laughs> is, indeed. ...is the only thing that possibly came to mind because... David Faber said, like, the clue was Waldorf because of Waldorf Astoria. And that was the, I was like, I was looking at this clue. I was like, the only information here are the dates, which I don't think is enough to just mm-hmm. give it to you, and Waldorf. 
And so I was yep. like, the only thing I associate with Waldorf is Astoria. But John Jacob Astor does not sound like a German immigrant to me. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are those are anglicized versions yeah. of those names. Like and so I was like, I have I don't know. I thought that was a tough one. That was a very tough one. Yeah. Agreed. Anyway, on Tuesday, we have the contestants Harry Hannigan, a writer from Los Angeles, California, Christina Leone, an operations assistant from East Hartford, Connecticut, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut. Ooh. Oh, man. Connecticut rivalry there. Mm-hmm. Uh, whose nine-day cash winnings are now $310,400. Uh, and we have the Jeopardy round categories. Definitely one of the 50 states. Typical Jason. <laughs> Religion. <laughs> you know what they say. Investing terms and genius Aretha. Uh, which shows clips and uh, features readings from Cynthia Erivo about Aretha Franklin with their new series on National Geographic, mm-hmm. which I might watch. I thought the religion category was good, kind of balanced, you know, yeah. good range of clues. Mm-hmm. I thought yeah. so as well. The you know what they say category at the $200 level, Matt had a kind of a foolish miss there. It, the clue is, they're the five words that makes Jack a dull boy. And he responded, what's all work, no play? Which, I mean, if he counted it out, that's four words. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So Christina picked up the rebound with all, what's all work and no and no play. Mm-hmm. Um, I like using that line. <laughs> no, Nobody really gets it. Like, most of the time I, I say it, people don't, like, pick up, you know, know where the reference is, but... It's still fun to me when I feel yeah know, when I'm feeling stressed mm-hmm. or something like all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yeah, <laughs> just thought to myself, does that phrase precede The Shining or does it like was it like originated there? And it, yes, it it precedes The Shining. Oh, does it? By yeah, by by centuries, in fact. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, so uh, so in The Shining, he's. I mean, I think The Shining really popularized it popularized it um and changed kind of how <laughs> it's how we, perceived yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah that's fair um uh but but yeah no it was uh it appeared in james howell's proverbs in 1659 ah, <laughs> apparently there yes and uh and there's a bunch of other kind of subsequent references for it all right. Daily Double number one comes up in the religion category. It's the 10th pick. It's at the $600 level. And Christina finds it. She has 3600 at that At this point, she's tied with Matt. Harry's at 1000 And she makes it a true Daily Double and gets the clue, the Umrah pilgrimage to Mecca can happen almost any time of the year, unlike this one that must happen in the month of Du al-Hijjah. And she correctly responds, what is the Hajj? Yeah, so that takes her up above Matt by quite a bit, which is not not something we've seen a whole lot. Yeah, not very much. Yeah. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt actually has managed to manage to regain a slim lead. He's at 8,600. Christine is at 8,400. Harry's at 2,000. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Definitely not one of the 50 U.S. states. Med, abbreviate, medical abbreviations, talk shows. Australian history, literary title characters, and after all. These are words that appear shortly after all in the dictionary. I feel like we've been seeing a lot of Australia clues. Yeah, recently. I guess not, Yeah, mentioning that the 
I do think that. I enjoyed that category. I like. I have recently been learning more about Australia, and so I've, mm-hmm. I've been enjoying that. Yeah. The definitely not one of the 50 U.S. states category is like a follow-up to the definitely one of the 50 U.S. states category in the previous round. Um, but this is kind of phrases that have uh, the word state in them, like state of play and state of denial, which was I thought it was a fun twist. Good writing. We had a triple stumper in the medical abbreviations category, which also I think, I mean, it connects to a deep dive. I don't know if you, I can't remember if you addressed this specifically. Uh, since 2000, the vaccine given in the U.S. for this is the IPV or in- inactivated one. Christine tried, what is the flu? Matt tried, what is the papilloma virus? Mm-hmm. Uh, neither of those are correct. It's polio. 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 You had your, your deep dive on, was on vaccines. vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, indeed. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the literary title characters category at the $1,200 level. It's pick number six. Harry locates it. He's at 2400 way behind Matt's 9400 and Christina's 10400 And he bets it all, as well he should. Gets the clue, in this novel inspired by a painting, Griet is the title 17th century portrait sitter. And he gets it correct with who is the girl with the pearl earring. He kind of mispronounces pearl at first, but he corrects it. Yep. And uh, Daily Double number three is just a few picks later. It's the ninth pick at the $1,200 level of Australian history. And Matt finds this one. He's at 13,000 at this point to Christina's 10,400 and Harry's 4,800. Matt makes it a true daily double, which, wow, like from, you know, from the lead. He just he just loves those lock games. Yeah. I mean, if he misses it, there's 21 clues left on the board Mm -hmm. and he's got $10,000 of ground to make up you know it's a, it's a gutsy move but you know it's, it's good he gets the clue australia became its own nation january 1st 1901 as the this of australia a word implying union for everyone's good and he correctly responds what is commonwealth that felt easy to me for a 1200 yeah level. yeah um but hey works out for matt it does work out for matt uh, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Matt is up to thirty six thousand. Christina is at ninety six hundred, and Harry is at seventy two hundred. So there's a battle for second place. They get the final jeopardy category: Asia. <laughs> and the clue: This country became independent in nineteen forty six. In nineteen sixty four, it officially switched its Independence Day from July fourth to June twelfth. Uh, Harry wrote, "What is Japan?" That is incorrect, and he bet everything, so he drops to zero. Christina wrote, what are the Philippines? And that is correct. Uh, Independence from the U.S. in 1946. And she wagered also everything, so she goes up to 19,200, which is a very good score. Yeah. Very good score. And uh, Matt also wrote, what is the Philippines? And he wagered 16,000, not risking his luck. So he jumps up to 52,000. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Nicole Yuen, an environmental scientist from Berkeley, California. Uh, Kevin Blum, an attorney originally from Boca Raton, Florida. And Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, 
whose 10 day cash winnings total $362,400. Ah, yeah. And we have the Jeopardy round categories Audible. Audible, like they had the the logo of the, the Amazon audiobook company. The 16th century. Automobiles assemble. Uh, they're looking for the name of the maker of each car on that one. Mm-hmm. Talk to the hand. Five mountain time. And let's eat. E-E-T in quotation marks. I mean, we, we mentioned it last week, but uh, we uh, our very first deep dive was mine on palmistry, mm-hmm. uh, which came up at the $800 level of talk to the hand. So, you know, we're really, really covering our uh our jeopardy topics yeah 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 again or we will cover everything at some point mm-hmm. i'm so bad at cars oh i mean like the famous ones i know but like kind of the like i don't know like like uh centra came up at the 400 dollar level i'm like i don't know that i don't care that much well you're from new york where no one drives a car so i get it i mean it's it's westchester everybody drives a car but (laughs) there's like there's five models right (laughs) i've got three looks and that's it i've got a tesla a prius and a van uh um Once you come out west of the Mississippi, you'll you'll see lots yeah. of bigger stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Data double number one is pick number five. It's in the 16th century category at the $800 level. Nicole finds it. She's at 1,000. Matt's at 2,000. Kevin's at zero. And she bets all 1,000 and gets the clue. Launched in 1536, the Portuguese version of this focused largely on pretend converts. And she guesses what is the missionary system, but that is incorrect. They're looking for the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Nobody expects. Yeah. The, the uh, Portuguese Inquisition. <laughs> that is yes. accurate. Uh, yeah. I feel like the missionary system was like just a much more positive and optimistic kind of response. Right. I mean, the actual were, answer. They were on a mission. <laughs> Yes. Ugh. To root out heretics and false converts. Yeah. Oh, uh, we've got some. We've got some atrocities in uh, in the past of my tradition. Not so great. I think just Ugh. Christianity in general. Yes. I I said my tradition to mean like Christianity in oh, okay. in general. Um, yeah. just just because like you know I I uh I think. That sometimes people uh, think of anyone critical of Christianity as not a Christian Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, uh, that all Christians sort of are uncritical of the uh, the history of their own faith. And like, no, we could we could be circumspect. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, really messed that one up. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is at 9,000. He didn't break 10,000 this this time. Mm, really disappointment. Off, really off his game. Kevin's at 2,200. Nicole is at 1,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are Anton Chekhov. Three-letter words. Howdy, Sheriff. C in science with C in quotation marks. The Chosen Few and The Famous Mom. 
mm-hmm. which I definitely went 0 for 5. Oh, I, oh, I no, knew... I knew Yoko Ono. Yes, I also knew Yoko Ono. I went Ono. 1 for 5. Yes, I... The, the rest of these are no no idea. Yeah. I'm like, I'm looking at the answers that I'm still not sure I understand the questions. <laughs> <laughs> or vice versa. Ah, uh, good point. Um, yeah. We have more religious persecution from Christian from Christian history at the $2,000 level of the Chosen View. This twinkly tribunal that persecuted Puritans was abolished by Parliament in 1641. That's the Star Chamber. Nobody mm-hmm. got that one. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about that. I don't either. I, that made me realize it. Like, I was like, I know that it existed. I got it correct because I know that was a term for that time period. Mm-hmm. But I did not know that they persecuted Puritans. Um, yeah. And to be honest kind of okay with it yeah just kidding i'm not uh, okay with persecution yeah although no. puritans i don't know am i okay puritanism with- was problematic in its own right right am i okay yeah. with persecuting people who are like we really want to persecute other people like i don't right yeah. i don't know how i feel about it. it's it's the paradox of tolerance right yes for a tolerant society to remain tolerant you have to be intolerant of intolerance mm-hmm yep I mean, the, the pure of Puritan uh, was about staying in the Church of England, but like, you know, rooting out all of the, you know, the, the corruption and, you know, sort of heresy that they that they thought they saw there. Mm-hmm. Probably shouldn't keep pointing out every time a deep dive comes up, but talked about the Earps a little bit at one mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Came up in Howdy Sheriff. Daily Double number two is at the $800 level of uh, Anton Chekhov. Uh, it's the 12th pick, and Matt finds it. He has 20200 at this point. Kevin and Nicole are both in the negative. Kevin's at negative 600. Nicole's at negative 400. Matt wagers 10000 and gets the clue. In the rhyme of the ancient mariner, an albatross gets killed. In an 1896 Chekhov play, it's one of these birds. And uh, he correctly responds, what's seagull? Uh The seagull is the place title. The fact that Kevin and Nicole both got into the red and stayed in the red for quite a bit of of double jeopardy led to um, my mom messaging me in the middle of the game to ask what happens if only one player has a positive score. I, b- I believe of- that ju- that player just goes to final jeopardy. Yeah. Um, and your wager, I think just determines your winning amount, right? Yeah. If you, if you wagered everything and got it wrong, would you win with zero or would you lose with zero? That's a good question. I don't think you would lose. Yeah. If everyone finishes in the red, which I don't think has happened, right? then Everybody loses because nobody has even nobody gets to participate in Final Jeopardy. Right. I don't think that they've had to decide whether they air the clue. Mm-hmm. That's never happened. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel like we were told, like theoretically, like if everyone finishes, uh, maybe not. I, maybe they didn't say this, uh, but I, I, I'm pretty sure that if everyone finishes in the red, then you start the next day with three new contestants and no returning champion. Yeah. Okay, Daily Double number three is in the C and Science category. It's at the $2,000 level. Matt finds this one as well. He is up to 33400 Kevin and Nicole are still in the red at negative 600 and negative 400. Uh, he wagers 5000 
He gets the clue. Numbers 55 and 58 on the periodic table are these two elements that differ by a letter. And he gets it correct with what are cesium and cerium. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Matt has a lot game with $43,200. Kevin is at $600. Nicole is at $400. I feel like last week we marveled at Matt having 10 times the score of his nearest competitor. Mm -hmm. And uh, today it's 72 times. The score of second place mm-hmm. going into final jeopardy where the category is the de- declaration of independence and the clue is the first published announcement of the declaration was by a philadelphia paper that reported it in this foreign language this was a triple stumper second triple stumper this week uh nicole wrote down german crossed it out and wrote what is french uh and she wagered everything so she drops to zero kevin tried what is dutch uh, he wagered 201. He's uh, competing with Nicole for that second place title. So he's trying to cover an all in from her. Um, since they both missed, he drops down to 399. So he will finish in second. And Matt also tried what is French. He wagered $37,000, um, which drops him down to 6200 uh, Good to go for it, man. Yeah, if he'd gotten this one correct, that would have taken him up a little over 80000 And as it is, he gets to come back and play the next day. Um, the correct answer here is German. German speakers were about a third of Philadelphia's citizens, uh, residents, and um, the Germantown area is another kind of uh, way in. Right. Pennsylvania Dutch is actually mm-hmm. German. Right. right? Uh, yes. So if he was think if Kevin was thinking Pennsylvania Dutch and wrote Dutch for that, that yeah. it's actually not Dutch; it's actually German. Yep. Uh, so on Thursday we have the contestants James Weldon, an emerging markets investor from Cambridge, Massachusetts; Ashley Rayner, a librarian from Chicago, Illinois; and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, who is at eleven days, winning three hundred sixty-eight thousand six hundred dollars. And we get the Jeopardy round categories: etymology. World War II, recent pop culture, cooking verbs, the interior department, and let's take it outside. I'm wondering whether braise would have been accepted at the $1,000 level of cooking verbs. The clue was to cook or stew gently just below the boiling point. And Ashley said simmer, and that was, I think, the response they were looking for. I thought of braise, and I think it might fit. Maybe. Hmm. Mm. Braises first you sear and then you stew slowly in a closed container. Um, but it mm. is like a the kind of the second phase is the is the kind of stew gently below boiling point. So probably not because braise does imply that kind of first like searing step. All right, I was just wrong. I was not quite sure how to feel about the $400 level of recent pop culture. The clue was, I Can't Do This by Her won the Grammy for Song of the Year in 2021. um, And Ashley got it. Uh, The song is I Can't Breathe. And Ashley was the one black contestant on stage. And that just kind of hit me in the gut. 
Yeah. I mean, it. it's fair trivia. It is. It just, um, it perhaps, yeah. I, yeah. I know what you're saying. Yeah. And, I mean, it's important to trivia. Trivia needs to be more diverse. Yeah. Yeah. But I imagine it would be hard to ring in on that one and then just call the next clue like it's just a piece of knowledge you have in your head yeah um all right well with that let's go to daily double it's the third pick um of the round it's at the thousand dollar level of etymology and matt finds it he has a thousand only uh because he got the one thousand dollar level response and then there was a triple stumper um so the other two are at zero he wagers a thousand and uh gets the clue this term for your setting or environment is french for middle place and he knows that's milieu so at the end of the jeopardy round um matt's in the lead with 6600 ashley's at 4200 james is at 2400 and we have the double jeopardy categories i'm your huckleberry What's the... Is there a reference I'm missing there? Uh, I don't know if it's from before this, but it's uh, Doc Holliday in uh, the movie Tombstone says that. Okay. Hmm. Played by Val Kilmer. Yeah. Oh, yep. Okay. Yeah. Which does actually come up in that category. Extinct animals around the world. Name the movie king. Uh, name the king, not the actor. A Poet Laureate, and Stand Pat. Pat, P-A-T, in quotation marks. Had a, an interesting rebound in Name the King. Uh, the clue was Patrick Stewart in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Matt rang in and said, what's John? Uh, that's incorrect. You know, if you're, if you're familiar with Robin Hood lore, there, there are two kings to know so so right. matt had tried matt had tried the first one um so ashley came in with the second uh who is king richard and uh david faber asked uh for a little more um she said who is king richard the lion-hearted he's also known as king richard the first right but yeah king richard lionheart the lion-hearted i think are mm-hmm. are all acceptable yep. for him yeah we also had a Louis the Sixteenth, Louis the Fourteenth mix up. Uh, mix up at the sixteen hundred dollar level. The clue there was the man in the iron mask. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so James tried who is Louis the Sixteenth, uh, and Matt got the rebound with Louis the Fourteenth. And, <laughs> and then we had like one of these things is not like the others at the eight hundred dollar level. The clue was first night. That's King Arthur. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, uh, the rest of these were all. Historically verifiably historical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We had a second daily double in the Poet Laureate category at the $1,200 level. It's the third pick in the round. Matt finds it. He's at $8,600. Ashley's at $4,200. James is at $2,400. And he wagers $4,000. And he gets a clue. The Poet Laureate of this state, like Marie Howe, receives the Walt Whitman citation. Walt was from that state. And uh, he guessed what's Massachusetts, but Walt Whitman is from New York, which I learned. I actually also learned. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did not know that. So. So he drops down. Yeah. It's a close game at this point. Uh-huh. But on his very next pick, he 
hits the third and final daily double at the $1,600 level of Around the World. And he wagers 4000 again. Um, he's at 4600 now, having just dropped down from 8600 The other two are exactly where Kyle said, because it's the very next pick. Um, he wagers 4000 and gets the clue, this African capital due south of Sicily got its name from a region with three ancient Phoenician cities. And you could see it come to him. Uh, he responds, what is Tripoli? Try like three and poly like polis like city. So that brings him back up to 8,600. Um, and then he just sort of takes off from there. James gets in for a little bit. Ashley has a few. Um, but yeah, but he just, yeah, he gets back mm-hmm. on his back on his horse. Yeah. Oh, let me also mention in the extinct animals category at the $1,200 level, there was a picture and the clue was with feathers once favored in women's hats. The Carolina variety of this bird was widespread in the Eastern U.S. until around 1920. Matt said, what's Wren? Uh, my my husband's from South Carolina. And he said, Matt knows too much. The the, Caro- the Wren, the Carolina Wren, is the South Carolina state bird. He must have memorized mm. a list. Because the picture does not look like a Wren. No. Uh, the Carolina parakeet mm-hmm. is the correct response yeah. there. So uh, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Matt has gotten himself into a lock position at 23,000. Ashley's at 9,000 and James is at 6,000. The final Jeopardy category is 1930s America and the clue, unpopular at the time, the man for whom it is named wasn't invited to the September 30th, 1935 dedication of this landmark. This one took a little bit of, a little bit of thinking, I thought, um, but makes sense. James put, what is Mount Rushmore? Uh, that is incorrect. And he had wagered all 6,000, so he drops to zero. Ashley wrote, what is Washington? I think Washington was dead by then, so maybe he was considered unpopular, but that is also incorrect. (laughs) Uh, She wagered 3,001, which is a cover bet. Matt had written, what is Mount Rushmore, but crossed it out and put, what is Hoover Dam, which is correct. Mm -hmm. Of course, Hoover did not get the country out of the Depression uh, or, like, stop it from happening, so a lot of people didn't like him during the 30s. Right. Yeah, I did not think of this one in time Mm -hmm. so um so yeah that uh i think at this point matt is starting to kind of break records and make it you know Mm -hmm. like like kind of climb the charts of most jeopardy winnings yes um and i think at the end of this game if i remember correctly david faber made you know an announcement about sort of where he ranks on the you know kind of most most money one in regular season play yep he can he can only climb that chart. Right. And on Friday, August 6th, we have the contestants Madeline Berkner, a college access program coordinator from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Patrick Pacheco, a labor and employment specialist from Denver, Colorado. Ooh. And Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 12-day cash winnings total $394,600. And we have the Jeopardy round categories What's your unsafe word? Which it's a family show. Yeah. How <laughs> are families uh, made? I mean, sometimes with activities <laughs> that involve a safe word. Um, That's all I'm saying. Uh, uh, TV supporting characters, uh, name the show, novels since 1900, oceanographic terms, souvenir. And 
ash tree. Oh man, we cackled when that "what's your unsafe word" category came out. <laughs> is that is that something the producers decided to let go by, or did is it something they didn't pay that much attention to? It's hard to say, really. You know, we've had uh, I don't know. Yeah, there's there's been a lot this season. There's been a lot. That is true. There was a reversal in that category, the $800 level. The clue is it can refer to one who is fearful and lacking self-confidence or a password that can be easily hacked. Uh, Patrick rang in and said what is weak. That was ruled incorrect. They were looking for insecure. But uh, after the, I think after the, like before the double jeopardy round, they decided that uh, that was correct and mm-hmm. gave him gave him 1600 for it. That's right. I heard him make that guess and thought, that actually fits all the parts of work. the clue. Yeah. 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 So I was sort of expecting the reversal and was pleased when it when it came because I really, you know, I really thought it was a correct, if unintended, response. Mm-hmm. Am I remembering right that Matt also was not confident on the pronunciation of the tree from Norsmith, which who would be confident on that? Thousand dollar level of ash tree. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Can't blame him for that, really. Yeah, yeah. But I, that's, I mean, Yggdrasil, it, right? Yeah, something Yggdrasil. like that. Yeah, a daunting one to try to pronounce. Yep. Um, yeah. So there, there are a lot of there. There were several words this week where, like, Matt clearly knew it from reading it and didn't know whether he was pronouncing it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, that's one where like none of us are sure if we're pronouncing it correctly. Yeah, <laughs> Good well, luck. sure. Yeah, you're close enough. Uh, Daily double number one is pick number two. Comes up very early. It is the thousand dollar level of oceanographic terms, and uh, Matt finds it. He got the thousand dollar clue in novels since 1900, so he is at one thousand. The other two are at zero. He bets it all, and he gets the clue term for the Pacific Ocean Zone that forms a band as long as the equator and has about 75% of Earth's active volcanoes. And he gets that correct with what is the Ring of Fire? I did not know that was oh. called that. Mm-hmm. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is up to 10,400, Patrick is at 2,600, and Madeline is at 1,600. So even getting that Daily Double super early, he just dominates right through the right through the round. And mm-hmm. we get the Double Jeopardy categories, Ancient Symbols. Hey, what year is it? Lesser Known Artists. Gee, I'd like to go there. G in quotation marks. Old Synonyms. And Songs That Give Advice. I got a little annoyed about the $2,000 level of G, I'd like to go there. The clue was a huge legendary being is said to have created this causeway of basalt columns jutting into the sea from Northern Ireland. Patrick rang in and said, what is a giant? That was ruled incorrect. It turned into a triple stumper. The answer they're looking for is giant's causeway. And I do see that, you know, he named the legendary being instead of the full name of the causeway, but also the word causeway was in the clue, mm-hmm. um, which I think could lead you to think you're not supposed to repeat that word. Yeah, or at least you don't have to. I'm with you on that one. I thought, hey, what year is it? Was kind of fun, challenging. Yeah. I, I guessed most of them, but wasn't confident enough that I think I would have rung in if I were up on the on the stage. 
the $400 level, the country gets rehitched at Appomattox Courthouse. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland begin. That's 1865. We had... um, Name the year when the star- stock market crashes, the St. Valentine's Day massacre goes down, Trotsky gets exiled from Russia. That was 1929. The year John Kerry was nominated for president and the Spirit Rover landed on Mars. I remember that. That's I remember not, that too. That's not history. That's current events. That was it. like a couple years ago in 2004. <laughs> yeah, just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Just yep. 17 years ago. Yep. And then the, the 1600 and the 2000, you could both know if you'd memorized the lyrics of Hamilton, uh, which is always great. <laughs> uh, at the 1600, you needed to know when the American Revolution ended and Washington Irving was born and Russia, Russia annexed Crimea. If you know any of those, you'll know 1783. And then the mm-hmm. last one was Burke Hills Hamilton, Lewis and Clark. Which you might also yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that one's 1804. Daily Double number two is the very first pick of the round. So Madeline finds it at the $1,200 level of G. I'd like to go there. The scores are all still the same as Kyle just said, because it's the first pick of the round. Uh, that was Matt at 10400 Patrick at 2600 Madeline at 1600 She wagers 1000 only. I would say with Matt in a huge lead and 29 clues ahead of you, if you miss, this is the time to go big, as big as you can. Um, but she goes with a thousand and gets the clue. This historic city lies at the junction of the same named Lake and the Rhone River. And she knows that that's Geneva. So that mm-hmm. brings her up to 2,600 tied with Patrick. Yep. Daily double number three is in the ancient symbols category. Uh, it's at the $1,600 level. It's pick number six in the round. So both of them came early. Uh, Matt finds this one. Uh, like he did the first, and he is up to 10,800. Patrick is at 200, Madeline's at 5,000, and he wagers only 2,000. The clue is the symbol seen here, they show a picture, is a representation of this loud avian of Native American mythology. Now, obviously, I can't really describe the drawing effectively, but he gets it correct with what is a thunderbird. Mm-hmm. I keep forgetting that that's a thing. Thunderbird? Yeah. I mean, I know, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a car. Um, and I keep forgetting that, like, the car was named after an important, you know, figure from Native American mythology. Mm-hmm. Come on, Emily. Keep that in your brain. Yeah. Anyway, Matt kept that in his brain. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, he has a lot game with 25,600. Uh, Madeline's in second place with 5,800. Patrick has 4,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category literature and the animal kingdom and the clue in 2020 scientists named trimerosurus salazar a new species of this after a character in a book series we go to patrick first he has the answer correct with what is a snake It's named after Salazar Slytherin, the founder of the Slytherin house in Harry Potter. Uh, Slytherin's very associated with snakes. Patrick has wagered everything, 4,200. That brings him up to 8,400. Madeline figured out the book series, but didn't make it to the animal. She wrote, what is Harry Potter? Uh, She wagered 2,601. That drops her down to 3,199. So she'll finish in third. And Matt correctly responded, 
what is snake and he had drawn a uh drawn a little doodle on there too uh could you see us is that how you pronounce that i'm never oh yeah the, yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and he's wagered ten thousand which he can, he could wager more than that without risking his lock, because good yes, lord, which brings him up to 35,600 for the game, and $430,200 for his Jeopardy run overall. Just a little bit there, yeah, up yeah. to fifth place overall in winnings. Mm-hmm. It's very impressive. Um, yes. I am very excited to see him come back next week. Me too. Yeah see how how long he goes i've been enjoying him his 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 manners of speech do not bother me so i've been i've been having a good time mm-hmm. i you know a really great way to get me not to be bothered by somebody's manners of speech is if people really go after them on the <laughs> um, on jeopardy's kind of public social media right like yep. there is there is nothing to get me to rush to their defense like criticizing strangers who have gone on jeopardy online right but the right. more people go after them the more i'm like they're fine stop it yeah i love them <laughs> I don't know them, but I love them, and it's because you hate them. <laughs> That's the reason. It's really super mature. So this is the time in the podcast where we take a break to remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables. There's a little bit of content on there. Mostly it just helps us to not lose money on doing this thing. Um, so if that's something that you want to be part of, you can go check it out. Um, and if you throw us a few dollars a month you can uh get access to what we do have on there and we we keep tossing around ideas for other stuff to put on so um if you have ideas of what you want us to do let us know also because uh because you know we're curious what y'all would be into um and we do want to provide things for you listeners we know you're out there yeah we also want to remind you the world is not great it could still use your help so if you are looking for uh, places to connect, um, a couple that we like are communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com. And the Stop AAPI Hate GoFundMe, you can find all those links in the show notes. Also, just a reminder that the pandemic is getting worse again. So you all know what you're supposed to do. If you're not vaccinated yet, Please vaccines are safe and effective. I did a whole deep dive on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was the easiest last question we've ever had. Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, if you are uh, in a place where you should be wearing masks, wearing wearing a mask, or hey, you know, sometimes double masking is uh, is helpful, although the situations where that's important are limited. Please wear your mask. People are being really obtuse about the masks, but just do it. Please. Thank you. All right. <laughs> That's enough. Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? Do I ever? Are we talking about the star chamber? We are not talking about the star chamber. Although oh, dang I, it, I very was, seriously considered it. I was really, I really thought that was going to be it. None of my other ones feel quite as good. Uh, are you talking about uh, the Inquisition? I am. That's the other one that I seriously considered, and <sighs> then this third one that I ended up going with. Okay. Are you talking about Cubism? I'm not talking about Cubism. All right. So this one is. There were actually two separate 
triple stumpers, both of which fit into what I'm doing today. Ooh. Yes. So, in Name the Movie King at the $800 level, we had First Night, and the correct response there was King Arthur. We joked around about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on Friday in Novels Since 1900, at the $800 level, there's a weapon in the title of this modern updating of an in- ancient English legend by T.H. White. That one's The Sword in the Stone. That was a triple stumper as well. Um, both of those are adaptations of Arthurian legend. Um mm-hmm. So Arthuriana uh, is is what we're talking about today. Ooh. I am not talking about the content of Arthur Arthurian legends themselves. I'm not going to be walking hmm. us through like Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot and Galahad and you know whatever. Like we'll uh, we'll touch on that a little bit. I'm going to assume that everybody has some basic familiarity. There could be a whole deep dive or two or three into those topics. Um, uh-huh. uh, but Arthurian legend is the source material uh, for a huge amount of significant uh, works of literature and film and other stuff. Um, and it comes up a lot uh, in all kinds of expect- unexpected places. Um, I certainly can't cover like every like time somebody referenced <laughs> King Arthur, um, but we're going to talk about kind of the development of Arthurian legend um, and some of the major uh, Arthurian works like in, in like in more modern culture as well. So I learned a new term this week, the matter of Britain, capital M. The Matter of Britain uh, is an umbrella term for the body of medieval literature and legendary material associated with Great Britain and Brittany and the legendary kings and heroes associated with it. Arthurian legend makes up quite uh, like a, like I think the majority of the or, you know, a, a large amount of the Matter of Britain. Um, but the Matter of Britain is like all the kind of legendary like British stuff. Okay. Um, there are three. There are three matters, actually. Uh, the uh, the matter of France is uh, legends around Charlemagne, and then the matter of Rome is the body of material derived from or inspired by classical mythology. Um, hmm. So, yeah. what about the matter of Horn? I can't speak to that one. Okay. Um, I'm just ta- I'm talking about the Matterhorn. Oh, the Matterhorn. Okay, joke. <laughs> bad right. joke. Sorry. I see what you did there with your bad joke. All right. All right. So. Um, medieval sources of Arthurian legend are divided into pre-Galfridian and Galfridian or post-Galfridian texts. Galfridus is the Latin form of the name Geoffrey. And so we, uh, we divide Arthurian references and texts into before and then after Geoffrey of Monmouth's so- pseudo-historical Historia Regum Britanniae, History of the Kings of Britain, uh, which was written in the 1130s. So uh, for pre-Galfridian stuff, uh, the earliest literary references to Arthur come from Welsh and Breton sourcey- sources. Um, Arthur appears in a handful of Welsh and Latin texts, either as a great warrior defending Britain from human and supernatural enemies, or as a magical figure of folklore. Um, and a lot of those references are very sort of brief 
kind of oblique, but he's like clearly like a reference point with which people were familiar. You know, a hero will be said to be, you know, you know, strong and mighty, but not as much so as King Arthur, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. and then they don't go on to say anything else about King Arthur, you know, these ancient texts, like so much is lost to history that you have to kind of infer a lot based on what remains. Um, So um, in the 1130s, we have this uh, Historia text, uh, History of the Kings of Britain, originally called De Gestis Britonum, on the deeds of the Britons. Um, It is a pseudo-historical account of British history, and it chronicles the lives of the kings of the Britons over the course of 2,000 years, beginning with the Trojans founding the British nation and continuing until the Anglo-Saxons assumed control of much of Britain around the 7th century. It is made up of 12 books, and by book 6, Merlin and young Uther Pendragon appear, Um, In book seven, we have a series of prophecies attributed to Merlin. Um, Book eight continues with Uther's reign. Books nine, 10, and 11 focus on Arthur. Um, Maybe some of 12 to the article that I looked at uh, combined the summary of 11 and 12. It was written in Latin, um, but translated quickly into Norman and later other languages and was widely influential. The popularity of Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia and its other derivative works gave rise to a significant number of new Arthurian works in continental Europe during the 12th and 13th centuries, particularly in France. Much of this 12th century and later Arthurian literature centers less on Arthur himself than on other characters, uh, such as Lancelot and Guinevere, Percival, Galahad, Gawain, Ewain, and Tristan and Isolde. Uh, that legendary material predates a lot of Arthurian legend, but then gets like incorporated in Tristan is a knight of the round table, etc. Yeah. So whereas Arthur is very much at the center of the pre-Galfridian material and uh, Jeffrey's Historia itself, um, in the Arthurian romances, that's what we, that's what they call this like 12th and 13th century development. He gets kind of sidelined. Arthurian figures appear in some of the Lays of Marie de France, but another French poet, Chrétien de Troyes, uh, had the greatest influence regarding the development of uh, Arthur's character and Arthurian legend. Chrétien wrote five Arthurian romances um, between about 1170 and 1190. The most significant for the development of the Arthurian legend are Lancelot, the Knight of the Cart, which introduces Lancelot and his adulterous relationship with Queen Guinevere, and Percival, the Story of the Grail, which introduces the Holy Grail and the Fisher King, and which is another one where Arthur doesn't have so much of a role. Hmm. Uh, Up until uh, the early 13th century, Continental Arthurian romance was mostly poetic, um, but after that date, the tales begin to be told in prose. Uh, in the 13th century, we have the prose uh, romance, the Vulgate Cycle, also known as the Lancelot Grail Cycle, a series of five Middle French prose works, Histoire del Saint Grail, the History of the Holy Grail, uh, the History of Merlin, uh, the prose Lancelot, the Quest for the Grail, and the Death of Arthur. Uh, I'm kind of translating from these French titles as I go, mm-hmm. which combined to form the first coherent version of the entire Arthurian legend. The cycle continues to kind of 
push Arthur to the side, uh, introduces Galahad, expands the role of Merlin. This series of texts was quickly followed by the post-Vulgate cycle, written in like 1230-1240, which uh, reduced the importance of Lancelot's affair with Guinevere to focus more on the Grail quest. In the late 14th century, an anonymous English poet writes Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, That one's an important kind of chivalric romance, longish poem. The title was given centuries later. It's uh, written in stanzas of alliterative verse. There was like a revival of alliterative verse, I think, at that point. It describes how Sir Gawain, uh, a knight of King Arthur's Round Table, accepts a challenge from a mysterious green knight uh, who dares any knight to strike him with his axe if he will ret- if he will take a return blow in a year and a day. Um, uh. Yeah. I studied that one way back when I took um, uh, English literature. That was a fun one. Nice. There is a movie out. Indeed. Now, right? <laughs> yes. The Green Knight. Yes. Yep. <laughs> there is there is a movie out now. I, I have notes on it, like, in my, like, when we get to 2021. <laughs> oh, okay, great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, minimal notes, like, that there is a movie out now. The development of the medieval Arthurian cycle and the character of the Arthur of Romance culminate in Le Morte d'Arthur, uh, Thomas Mallory's retelling of the entire legend in a single work in English in the late 15th century. Mallory based his book, originally titled The Whole Book of King Arthur and of His Noble Knights of the Round Table, on the various previous romance versions, in particular the Vulgate Cycle, and he appears to have aimed at creating a comprehensive and authoritative collection of Arthurian stories. That's Le Morte d'Arthur. The end of the Middle Ages brought with it waning interest in King Arthur, um, motivated in part by skepticism about the historicity of the texts the legends are mm-hmm. based on. Fair enough. Um yeah. They, were, they are pseudo-historical. Right. Um, 1634 saw the last printing of Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur for nearly 200 years. King Arthur and Arthurian legend were not entirely abandoned, but until the early 19th century, the material was taken less seriously and was used as a vehicle for allegories of 17th and 18th century politics. In the early 19th century, medievalism, romanticism, and the Gothic revival reawakened interest in Arthur and the medieval romances. Uh, This renewed interest first made itself felt in 1816, when Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur was reprinted for the first time since 1634. Uh, Arthurian legend became a source for poets, uh, most notably Alfred Lord Tennyson, whose first Arthurian poem, The Lady of Shalott was published in 1832. I had a rejected quiz question about The Lady of Shalott Hmm. because in the novel Anne of Green Gables, Anne is obsessed with various works of literature, including The Lady of Shalott, and I think gets herself into some danger um, trying to uh, recreate a scene from The Lady of Shalott where she uh, floats herself down a river. Anyway... So I thought about asking about Anne of Green Gables, and then I thought, I'm pretty sure I've done that. So, All right, so uh, Tennyson, Lady of Shalott, 1832. Um, Tennyson's Arthurian work continued, reached its peak of popularity with Idols of the King, uh, which reworked the entire narrative of Arthur's life for the Victorian era. It was published in 1859, and it sold 10,000 copies within the first week of publication. 
we're getting up to uh, Wagner at this point. Uh, Brant, let's bring mm. in a little opera, opera and note that uh, that Wagner used Arthurian legend as source material, uh, most notably uh, Parsifal. Uh, Lohengrin also connects in and Tristan and Isolde. It's because, you know, because the Tristan and Isolde legendary material gets brought into Arthurian legend. Mm. Um, yeah, but anyway, the revived interest in Arthurian romance uh, carried over to the United States as well. Sidney Lanier's book, The Boys King Arthur, was published in 1880 and reached wide audiences. That provided inspiration for Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, published in 1889, in which a Yankee engineer from Connecticut named Hank Morgan receives a severe blow to the head and is somehow transported in time and space to England during the reign of King Arthur, where he uh, uses his knowledge to make people believe that he is a powerful magician. Moving right on forward, there's Arthurian imagery in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, I'm not going to get into that too much, but it's worth knowing it's there. Uh, mentions of the Fisher King. And uh, and then there's Prince Valiant, which I don't actually know a whole lot about Prince Valiant, but it it is an American comic strip created by Hal Foster in 1937. I believe it is still being published, an epic adventure that has told a continuous story during its entire history. The full stretch of that story now totals more than 4,000 Sunday strips. Wow. Uh, yeah. And the, and the original full title of that comic is Prince Valiant in the days of King Arthur. So it's it's Arthurian material all worked in. And then, of course, from 1938 to 1958, T.H. White is publishing The Once and Future King Cycle. Uh, the Sword in the Stone is published in 1938, detailing the youth of Arthur. The Queen of Air and Darkness in 1939. Oh, or I think it was maybe published originally as The Witch in the Wood and then retitled when he... Um, published the complete cycle. I'm a little confused about that. Um, the Ill-Made Knight in 1940, uh, dealing mainly with Lancelot. And then the fourth part, which was first published in the composite edi edition, collecting all four books and revising some of them slightly, is The Candle in the Wind. And that composite edition, the Once and Future Kings cycle is published in 1958. The whole thing is based on Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur. That's where it sort of draws its source material. Uh, Roger Lancelin Green of the Inklings uh, is, is uh, a popular author at this time. He publishes King Arthur and His Knights of the Round Table, a retelling of Arthurian legends um, intended for a child audience. He also published a retelling of um, like Robin Hood lore, which I think might have been like where I read and learned Robin Hood lore. I think it might have been his book. Uh, his King Arthur book was first published by Puffin Books in 1953. It's been reprinted many times and was reissued again in 2008. So that one's kind of still in circulation. Um, I mean, as are many of these. But I uh, think I thought of him as like a little more vintage -y. Um hmm. Yeah. The Dark is Rising is oh yeah yeah that's that's arthurian also mm -hmm. um is a young adult series by british author susan cooper five fantasy novels for older children and young adults um published between 1965 and 1977 
It depicts a struggle between forces of good and evil called the light and the dark, and it's based on Arthurian legend, Celtic mythology, Norse mythology, and English folklore. And it was it was pretty critically acclaimed. There's lots of children's and adult books about about King Arthur. A couple of others that stuck out for me. Um, uh, children's author Rosemary Sutcliffe had a number of Arthurian and Arthurian-adjacent novels for children. John Steinbeck wrote a retelling of the Arthurian legend, like more of a straight retelling, not like an East of Eden retelling. The Acts of King Arthur and His Noble Knights, which was left unfinished at his death, um, but was published po- published posthumously. He began his adaptation in November 1956, having long been a lover of Arthurian legend. And, uh, and it was published in 1976. Um, Arthur Rex is a tragicomic novel by American author Thomas Berger in 1978. That one was published. Um, and then we get to The Mists of Avalon. I've read so few of these, it's a little bit embarrassing. Uh, I know that I know I should have read some of these. Um, the Mists of Avalon is a 1983 historical fantasy novel by American writer Marion Zimmer Bradley, in which she relates the Arthurian legends from the perspective of the female characters, mm-hmm. uh, in stark contrast to most other retellings of the Arthurian tales, which tend to cast Morgan Le Fay as a distant, one-dimensional evil sorceress uh, with little or no explanation given for her antagonism to the Round Table. In *The Mists of Ab- Avalon*, uh, Morgan is presented as a woman with unique gifts and responsibilities at a time of political and spiritual upheaval, who is called upon to defend her indigenous heritage against impossible odds. That's a that's a summary I found. I, I haven't read it, although now I think I should. <laughs> um, I was, was going to say, you put that really succinctly yeah. for not having read it. Yeah, it was, um, it was expanded into a series um, with Diana L. Paxson as an uncredited co-author on several sequels, um, and then Paxson took over writing the rest of the books um, as the as the primary author after Marion Zimmer Bradley died. And I'll throw in one more here. Avalon High is a young adult novel by Meg Cabot uh, of The Princess Diaries fame. Um, it was published in 2005. And in that one, high school students find themselves to be reincarnations of characters from the Arthurian cycle. Uh, I think that one had like a, like a TV or film adaptation too. Uh, speaking of TV and film adaptations, Arthuriana is uh, a big source for film and theater material. T.H. White's novel was adapted into the Lerner and Low Stage musical Camelot in 1960 and Walt Disney's animated film The Sword in the Stone in 1963. Camelot, then in turn, the, the musical uh, was made into a film of the same name in 1967. There were, uh, you know, sort of more more straight, like sort of serious drama versions of Arthurian films also Robert Bresson's Lancelot du Lac in 1974, Eric Romer's Percival Le Galois in 1978, John Borman's Excalibur in 1981. And then, of course, we have Monty Python and the Holy Grail uh, mm-hmm. in 1975, which was itself adopted into the Broadway musical Spamalot. Another movie that came up this week on Jeopardy and inspired the steep dive is First Night in 1995, a movie based on the abduction of Guinevere by the knight Maligant, uh, featured Sean Connery as King Arthur, Richard Gere as Lancelot, Julia Ormond as Guinevere. There was a 2004 historical adventure film called King Arthur, 
There was. Yeah, it was not good. I'm, I'm given to understand, I think, with Clive Owen as King Arthur. It had Yoan Griffith as Lancelot and Kira Knightley as Guinevere. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, there have been numerous adaptations of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Uh, some of them more kind of straight, others more wacky. Uh, there was a film called Unidentified Flying o- Oddball, also known as The Spaceman and King Arthur, also known as A Spaceman in King Arthur's Court. That was a 1979 <laughs> film. Uh, there was the 1995 A Kid in King Arthur's Court. <laughs> um, in 2001, there was um, Black Knight with... It was Martin Lawrence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was, a, there was a Soviet adaptation of a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. It was called New Adventures of a Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And that was uh, that was a 1988 film. Okay. Yeah. And there was a TV film starring Whoopi Goldberg in 1998 called A Night in Camelot. And then, of course, taking us to the present day, uh, there's the 2021 film The Green Knight, directed by David Lowry and starring Dev Patel as Gawain. Um, so that's by no means an exhaustive list of Arthur in film and literature. I have not even touched on music other than Wagner, uh, television, board games, video games. There are loads of books and movies that are fairly direct retellings of Arthurian material that I didn't include here, because there were so many that I tried to prioritize the ones that are especially well known or influential or just kind of, you know, amused me. Um, Sorry. (laughs) I I made sure to get the well known and influential ones and then others that Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that'll that'll add some variety, you know. And then beyond that, there are other works that are Arthurian inspired, but less directly, or where Arthurian material is one small part of a larger whole, like every time travel series has a King Arthur episode. <laughs> um, it does seem that way, doesn't yeah, it? No, I think they all do. Um, they have uh, to. But we've covered uh, the origin of this, of these legends, and some of the most famous major works of Arthuriana. So that's where we're going to stop. And then I'm going to cover some of the other, like more oblique stuff in the quiz okay so that'll work yeah um so are you ready for a quiz of course i am all right question one what american singer songwriter and activist sang her original song sweet sir galahad in her set at woodstock after debuting it on the smothers brothers comedy hour she worked closely with bob dylan and pete seeger and her Woodstock set also included We Shall Overcome. Oh, I know this. We Shall Overcome. I can I can hear it. I just can't remember who it was. Um Oh, is it? Am I am I am I pushing myself down the wrong direction? Singer-songwriter activist makes me ooh, that makes me go to Nina Simone. So I'm going to go with Nina Simone. Ooh, um, that's not correct. It's Joan Baez. Joan Baez. Of course. Yeah. I knew that. Oh, I knew that. I knew that. I don't know why I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, she's uh, she's actually slated for a Kennedy Center honor. Uh, still, still, you know, with us, still working, still singing. The ceremony to honor her and the other Kennedy Center honorees has been pushed back due to the pandemic. Um, but next time they have that, she will be honored. All right. Question two. 
King Arthur's name has been borrowed by a company which is now headquartered in Norwich, Vermont, where visitors can browse their wares at the company store or attend classes. What does this company sell? It might help to note that many of their signature products were sold out or very low in stock in March of 2020. They've since, they've since been restocked. They're fine now. Sure. I don't know if this is too obvious, but feels like that would be masks. Mm. That's not a bad guess, but this is the King Arthur Flower Company. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they, they sell flour. They sell baking, uh, flour, baking products, baking goods. Mm-hmm. And like, um, yeah, so they're, they're a baking specialty company. Um, they were founded in 1790 in Boston as Henry Wood and Company. Oh, and then- King Arthur. I know King Arthur flour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have some <laughs> in the cabinet because it has like, it's like, it's, uh, it, we have the, like the, the self-rising kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I should have left it. I was, well, maybe it wouldn't have helped you with masks. I was going to be, I was going to be like, what never bleached, never bromated product do they sell? Oh, well, um, I'm sorry. Yeah. So they were actually, uh, they were not founded as King Arthur Flower because it was 1790 and people didn't really care about Arthurian legend so much then. Um, but in 1896, one of the co-owners saw one of the King Arthur musicals I didn't mention. <laughs> And they rebranded as the King Arthur Flower Company, and they've been the King Arthur Flower Company ever since. Okay. Um, Yeah. Question three. There's a series of children's books that did not come up on any of the lists of Arthurian-inspired literature that I saw as I was preparing this deep dive, which is surprising because it's a popular children's series uh, for, like, early elementary readers, I think. Um, And it features... It features two children, Jack and Annie Smith, being sent on time-traveling adventures, first by Morgan Le Fay and later by Merlin. What is this series by Mary Pope Osborne? Uh, that is a series that we like to listen to with uh, our older daughter. And that is... Is it the... It's the Magic Treehouse? Yes, it's the Magic okay. Treehouse. <sighs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the Magic Treehouse also has a musical adaptation, um, not like not like a Broadway musical, like one of those, you know, sort of short musicals for kids, you know, mm-hmm. um, that toured. Anyway, um, the musical is uh, based on the book Christmas in Camelot. So that's all Arthurian stuff, too. Um, and uh, our kids went through a phase of listening to the Magic Treehouse musical, including, I think, three times in a row on a road trip. Uh, nice. but, it's, but it's not it's not bad it's not a bad musical it's okay all right all right so you're at 10 points question four what 1980s animated television television series included an episode titled a decepticon raider in king arthur's court <laughs> this is the more obscure of the franchise's king arthur inspired material there was also a 2017 film starring mark Wahlberg that was apparently terrible yeah, I haven't seen the Wahlberg movie. Uh, that, that would be Transformers. That is Transformers, yes. And the, the movie in question is Transformers The Last Night. It was apparently nominated for 10 Razzie Awards. Okay. All right, so you're at 20. Turning this around. Um, all right, question five. Arthuriana features prominently in comics. I only touched briefly on Prince Valiant and not on any of the other stuff, but there's, 
King Arthur material all over uh, comics. Um, so, what Dark Horse character's backstory includes being descended from King Arthur via Mordred? This character was played in film by Ron Perlman in 2004 and by David Harbour in a 2019 reboot. Ron Perlman in 2004. Was there a reboot of that? Mm-hmm. Because I know... I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I remember what Ron Perlman played. Um, Ron Perlman was also in the 2008... Sequel to sequel. it? Sequel, yes. Okay, then, yeah, then that, that... I'm pretty sure that's Hellboy. That is Hellboy, yes. Hellboy on his human side is descended from King Arthur. Interesting. Uh, I did not really pay much attention to the movie, so if that was mentioned, I uh, wouldn't have caught it. I don't think it came up in the movie from what I saw. Um, that's all in the in the comic stuff, but like, I figured you probably were not. Like, like asking like deep, detailed questions of like, you know, Hellboy, mm-hmm. like this series, like issue number six, like felt a little, uh, a little heading more toward the minutia side of trivia. <laughs> um, sure. So I figured I, I figured I'd uh, make a connection to a, um, a more familiar popular culture rather than be like, have you read all of this series? Like I have, I have not. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Yeah. All right. So you're at 30 points and uh, we're going to call our final category board games. Okay. I do like board games and I have played board games. So I'm going to bet it all. All right. So for 60 points, Shadows Over Camelot is an Arthurian-themed board game published by Days of Wonder. It's an example of what type of game? Other games of this type include Pandemic, Hanabi, Arkham Horror, and ironically, one of the two sets of rules of the Landlord's Game, which was the precursor to Monopoly. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if this is this might be too general of what you're for what you're talking about, but it's a cooperative game. That is exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sweet. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. I've heard of I've heard about that from the uh, from the Landlord's Game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the Landlord's Game. Um, was an anti-capitalist game. Yes. Um, <laughs> there were two sets of rules, one in which you try to um, drive your opponents into bankruptcy while accruing as much money as you can. And in the other set of rules, you try to collaborate to build prosperity. The concept was stolen and only the first set of rules <laughs> made it into uh, yep. the game that we all know and hate. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I haven't played Shadows Over Camelot. I have played actually all of the other three I mentioned, although I tried to find sort of the ones that seemed like they come up a lot or like have gotten a lot of awards or like, a you know, of the, mm-hmm. of the list of cooperative games I looked at. Yeah. So yeah, in a cooperative game, you and the other players are collaborating to try to beat the game together, as you, Kyle, know. Have you played Hanabi before? I have not played Hanabi. Hanabi's... Pandemic. Yeah. Hanabi's really fun um, and, and quick once you, once you learn it, which is nice. In Hanabi, you are fireworks manufacturers trying to... <laughs> 
uh, get all of your like fireworks made before <laughs> before you uh, before before there is an explosion. Nice or something like that. Arkham Horror I've only played once and we got very very confused. Um, but pandemic, Arkham Horror has a lot to it. Yeah, I went back and forth about like betrayal at house on the hill has like has the cooperative beginning but then it's the, not yeah the, but then it's like everyone against like whoever uh which is the best part oh, i love so being good. the traitor um <laughs> all right so listeners you want to play betrayal at house on the hill it's so it's so good. good and it's different every time mm-hmm. all right so this has been board game nerdery (laughs) (laughs) we're we're a betrayal at house on the hill fan cast now um yes yes uh no seriously um thank you for uh for listening to my deep dive and making a podcast with me and uh geeking out about board games and thank you listeners for spending your time with us uh make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts leave a rating or review if you would if you want to check out our patreon it's patreon.com slash potent potables and if you have friends who watch jeopardy let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy! recaps. Uh, this time, the guest host will be apparently much maligned Joe Buck. So I believe this is the last week you know, of this I can- season. I can now think of people I am more annoyed about hosting Jeopardy. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, So until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. 